You know, baptism, when you think about it, for the church, it's a symbol of the life change that God is doing. And so you've celebrated with us. We want to celebrate with you. And over the next two months, you are going to have three different opportunities to be a part of baptism service as well. One will be in here for you for adults. There'll also be one for kids, and there'll be one for students as well. You'll be hearing more information about that. And so we look forward to celebrating together. And then, of course, as you know, every fall, we do baptisms all together, all three locations, party on the lawn. But it is what a symbol of what God is doing in changing lives. And we're all part of that together as a family of faith. Now, the second thing that families do is they invite each other, invite each other to stuff. So I don't know, men, how many of you are in this room cutting a rug on Friday night, but I was here with my three daughters for the daddy-daughter dance, and we had a fantastic time. And I want to invite you all to be a part of something we're going to do at Franklin a week from Wednesday, if you're available to be a part of it. We're going to have a night of worship and prayer, some information on the screen here uh, that'll come up behind me. The theme and the real, the reason that we're doing this is to prepare our hearts for Easter. So believe it or not, we're coming up on that season. It's not that many weeks away. And so we want to just not let Easter surprise us or kind of just show up or sneak up on us. We want to enter into an intentional process of how can we, even with our families, with our kids and in our own hearts, kind of walk through a journey with Jesus to the cross and then to the empty grave. So we'll be talking about that a week from Wednesday. We'd love for you to join us if you're able. Well, go ahead and take your Bible, open up to Mark chapter 9. This is where we're going to be jumping back into the text. We are at in a, a pivotal place in Mark's gospel. If you think about what's been happening here, Mark's gospel is divided into two sections, essentially. The first half, the first eight chapters, revolves around the question, who is Jesus? And in 8 verse 29, we taught on a few weeks ago, the answer emerged from the lips of Peter. You are the Christ, Peter said. In other words, you're the Messiah. You're a king. You're our only hope. And then immediately what's so interesting is Jesus shifts and he says, all right, you need to understand, here's what it looks like for me to be your king. Here's what it looks like for me to be your hope. I'm going to go to the grave. And if you're following me, you're coming with me. So go ahead and bear that cross. Go ahead and pick out your gravestone, so to speak, is what he was saying. And, you know, this is a shock to the disciples. And then what's going to happen, the second half of the book of Mark, is they're going to actually learn what he meant. So for us, the question that we've been talking about over the eight chapters we've studied so far is, who is Jesus? Well, we got the answer. Now the question is, what does that mean to you? What does it mean to follow the one who is the Messiah, the one who is the Christ? And last week, Michael was here, did a great job of talking about the mountaintop experience. And sometimes in our spiritual lives, we see kind of God's glory. Like some of you may be in a place now where you're like, man, I just, God's been doing some work in my life that I've been recognizing. It's been obvious, and I'm celebrating that this morning. You're a little bit on that mountaintop, you know, we're, we're beholding the glory of Christ, which is what those three disciples did last week. But then they come down from the mountain, right? And if you remember last week, even on the way down, Jesus is talking again about death. And from the moment they're on the peak of the mountain and they start down, it's kind of all downhill in terms of their following him getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. They're going to be going south. They're going to be going down. They're going to be going uh, into Jerusalem where he will ultimately suffer and die and they're following him into the teeth of that. That's the second half of the book. That's where we're going. Now, today's passage is interesting because what we do in today's passage is we get an inside look at while the three were on the mountain, the nine others were down in the valley. So what was going on with them? This is sort of a, a glimpse of a real life. The hardness, the struggle, it answers the question, what does it look like to follow Jesus? It's hard. 
It puts you out of your depth. And these nine disciples, as you're about to see, they're out of their depth. Now, why do we need this passage this morning? I think any of you that are not on a mountaintop right now can identify with what you're going to read. Any of you who are saying, okay, I've been at the spiritual highs, but that's not where I'm at right now. Right now, I'm struggling. Maybe you're struggling with your faith. Maybe you're struggling with a particular circumstance, a situation in your life. You're going to identify with what's happening in the nine disciples that were not on the top of the mountain. In fact, I'd even say it this way. For all of us that have ever wondered, is there something wrong with me? I don't have enough to do this Christian life. I can't do it. I've, I try and I fail. I can't even muster up enough faith that I think I'm supposed to have. For any of you that would identify with that, the passage is for you. And I would even say, if you've never in your life asked what's wrong with you, there might be something wrong with you. <laughs> So this is where we're all going to find ourselves either right now or in the recent past or in the future is this walk of faith is hard. It's not meant to be a cakewalk. We walk by faith, not by sight. Jesus never said it was easy. Now, last statement in the introduction here, and I think this hopefully summarizes it. To the degree that this morning you can understand and acknowledge your own need your own gaps, your own insufficiencies, your own inability, to that degree, you'll be able to find hope in this text. It's a very hopeful text for men and women that understand their own lack, their own insufficiency. So let's jump in. We're in Mark 9, and we're going to pick it up in verse 14 when Jesus and the three disciples get back down from the mountain and they hear what's been happening below. When they, got, when they came back to the disciples, meaning the other nine disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Now let's pause right there. Remember the scribes in this text are the enemies of Jesus, right? They've already determined in their minds he's from Satan. That was a couple chapters ago. And now they're determined to trap him, to kill him. So you know things are not good when the scribes are around in the story. Verse 15. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? In other words, what, what are you talking about with the nine disciples, my disciples? 17, and one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. Pause there. Let's talk about what's going on here. This man brings his son expecting to find Jesus. Jesus is up on the mountain. So he says, all right, well, surely his disciples can do it. Now, remember, the disciples had been sent out earlier and they had casted out demons. This is something that they've already done. So they try to cast out the demon. It doesn't work. Now, to identify with the struggle, with the situation, I want to just call your attention, even from these first four or five verses that we've read so far, all the different aspects of, of hard life, like life struggle that's happening in this text. Number one, you have the disciples' failure. And as I read these, I'm going to ask how many of these can you identify with? Like, 
Anybody in the middle? You don't have to raise your hand. Anybody in the middle of some failure right now? <laughs> Yesterday, uh, Jody's away at a, a retreat uh, with women in our church, and so I had, had the girls all day yesterday, and I was like, we're going to have this fantastic day. We're going to ride our bikes and do all these fun things. And guys, like, they just like, wore my patience down like, little by little all day long. And finally, it got about dinner time, and I had the equivalent of a parental belly flop. <laughs> It was not pretty. I mean, it was like, boom, it was ugly. And the girls knew it. I knew it. I had to apologize afterward. I blew up. I exploded. And so this morning, I sit with this sense. I needed to be on, and I did a belly flop. So some of us are in failure right now. There's also relational conflict. Did you catch this? In fact, fact, we know there's arguing. I imagine there's some blame casting going on. So one of the disciples, like, you know, you did it wrong. You're trying to cast out this demon. That's not how Jesus taught us. Like, I imagine this kind of conversation is going. There's some arguing. There's probably some blaming. There's relational conflict. Anybody sitting in relational conflict in your life? That's probably more than half of the room in some way, shape, or form. That's part of the struggle of life. So there's failure, relational conflict. Then there's disappointed people. This man needs help. Anybody ever been in a situation where you, like, you want to help somebody and you can't? You just can't help them? There's unmet expectations that you bear the burden of. Like they came to you and you can't do it. You had to say no or you tried and failed, whatever it is. That's a weight. So you've got their failure. You've got relational conflict. You've got unmet expectations, disappointed people. Uh, not only that, but the scribes are in the midst. So there's enemies around. Now, any, anybody can identify with this as well. There are people in your life that want you to fail. They just do. For whatever reason, you know, something upset them or they're wrong, they're your enemy and maybe they wouldn't call themselves your enemy, but they kind of snicker a little bit when you're not at your best. They want you to fail. That's what's happening here. You start to see this is real life, right? You've got failure, relational conflict, disappointed people, people who want you to fail. And then the last thing the disciples are facing, and don't miss this one, in the center of this whole mix of struggle, there's evil. Like in the center of a circle is a boy with a demon. Literal evil is here. And it's, you know, it's sort of emanating the center of this, all this other uh, chaos that's happening. This is what Jesus and the three disciples come back into. You mix it all together and you realize these disciples are out of their depth. They cannot handle this. Any of this starting to sound real to you or some aspect of it? I hope it is. Now the theme of our whole text, you've already seen it introduced, is the inability of the disciples. Like where their sufficiency ends, their ability ends, that's the theme of the text. And so we all identify with that. There are things that we're called to do we cannot do. We're insufficient. Now, that's not such a bad thing. You're going to see why in a minute. This text has one of the sandwich structures that we've talked about several times in the Gospel of Mark. Mark likes to introduce a theme and then he sort of unpacks it in the middle part of the sandwich and he comes back to the same theme at the end. And so it, we call it a sandwich. And what I want to do is something a little bit unusual. We've talked about the, the top piece of bread, this first part of this theme of insufficiency of the disciples. They could not cast out the demon. We're going to skip over the actual casting out of the demon. Spoiler alert, Jesus is going to do what they couldn't do. And then we're going to come back to the bottom. We're going to go ahead right now and go to the bottom piece of bread, which is they're going to ask Jesus, why couldn't we do it? In other words, ready for this? What's wrong with us? What's wrong with me? And I want you to hear his answer. It's very interesting. So jump down to verse 28. When he came into the house, this is after all the action's over, 
his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Now, here's what's going on. The crowds are gone. This is some private time with Jesus, right? Consider this the after-action review, any of you with a military background, right? This is like, what, what went well? What didn't go well? What went well is Jesus. What didn't go well is us. That's the bottom line here. And they're saying, what's wrong with us? Why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus' answers a little bit, like in a way, it just seems like, like, a, like a, a throwaway. In another way, there's actually something deep here. So he says, this kind can only come out through prayer. Now, what does this mean? You know, we've puzzled over this. There, are there different levels of demons? Are there different strengths of demons? Well, there's actually some scriptures that indicate that that is probably true. So there's something about the strength of this demon that could not come out the way they were doing it. But what I want you to see, kind of the, the forest rather than the trees, is that they weren't praying. In other words, they didn't ask God to help them. What is prayer when you really think about it? It's not just a religious thing you do. Prayer is calling out for help. Prayer is saying, I don't have everything that I need, so I'm going to talk to the one that does. Prayer is an expression of insufficiency. It's an expression of inability. It's like, I don't have it. I need to talk to you, God. And the disciples were trying to cast this demon out in their own ability, in their own strength. They never called for help. They were called in the reinforcements. They thought they could handle it based on what they'd done before and what they knew. And they found out that it was beyond them. And so Jesus is saying, look, you can't do this without help. That's the big idea. So here's the first lesson in the text. We're going to get this lesson already. It's from the, the sandwich part, the beginning and end of the text. It focuses on the inability, insufficiency of the disciples. Here's what Jesus is teaching them. Your own resources are not enough for the tasks I've called you to do. And this applies just as much for us. Some of us don't like hearing that, but it's true. You cannot do everything that God has called you to do. You can't live the life of faith. You can't serve him. You, you, whatever it is, parenting, your job, your career, your marriage, your relationships, anything that matters, you don't have the resources you need to do it on your own. Why is this such a hard lesson for us to learn? It is. It is for me. So I thought about my parenting belly flop yesterday. <laughs> I was like, my own resources, right? Books I've read, my level of patience, my understanding of my daughters, insufficient. Insufficient for me to parent them the way that God would want me to parent them. There are some things that can only come out through prayer, you see. Now, I want to explore this theme of our gaps, our insufficiency, for two reasons. One is because it's really important. Two is because the sandwich of, or the meat of the sandwich, rather, in this text is going to show, show us the one person in the story that understood his insufficiencies and what happened with him. Now, let's talk about this theme Human beings are remarkable creatures. Like you are, I am. There's no question about it. In Psalm 139, we learn that we were fearfully and wonderfully made. In Ephesians chapter 2, we learn that we were God's workmanship. And it probably would be better translated from the Greek, you are God's masterpiece. Like of the whole creation, 
Human beings is what God sits back and he says, it is very good, not just good, very good. And yet, note the way he designed you as wonderfully and fearfully made as you are. You don't have everything that you need. And that's not just because we live in a fallen world. In fact, even Adam, before the fall, Adam and Eve in the garden, they still had to depend upon God. They were designed to be relationally connected with God. And when they stepped away from that relational connection, it was like unplugging them from a power source. They lost life. And this is the state that you and I are in. We were designed to be connected to God. We were designed to live in relationship to Him. We were not designed to be autonomous. We were not designed to be independent, self-sufficient. It's just who God designed us to be. And if you don't like that because you want to be you know, your own man and decide who makes the rules and do all these things, it's an important lesson for you to learn that, listen, you do have freedom. You do have creativity. But it's all within this broader connection according to how God designed you to be. is dependent on him, not independent from him. Now, I want to give you an illustration to show this. I'm really excited about the self-driving car revolution that apparently is going to be happening maybe in our lifetime. Right? So you got a picture here of this uh, Google self-driving car. Now, why am I excited? Because I'm just like, I, I, I'm either weird enough or lazy enough or I want to I multitask enough that I want to be reading a book or typing emails or maybe sometimes sleeping while I'm getting driven around, all right? This is, and I can't afford a chauffeur, all right? So th- I'm excited about the self-driving cars. Now, I wanted to use this as an analogy because I thought about it and I was like, you know what I think? I think most of us think that we're designed to be autonomous, I think most of us think, you know, God wired us, he programmed us, he gave us certain gifts, and, you know, we learned the law, we learned all these other things, and then he, he sets us out on the street, and, and he's like, go. Now, here's the problem with the autonomous cars. They're not, they haven't arrived yet. In fact, just two weeks ago, two weeks ago yesterday, there was the first ever race of autonomous vehicles on a professional racetrack, and you know how it ended? and a crash. You were not designed to be autonomous. You weren't designed to be a self-driving car. And so what happens in our lives is like we're, we're, we're out, we're not really connected to God, we're not really praying that much, we're not really dependent on Him. We're like, we kind of got this. Got this, God, in my marriage, my parenting, my career, and all these other areas. And then what happens is inevitably we crash and we're like, okay, something in my programming is wrong. I need to go back to the engineer and I need to get some new code programmed in. So I'm going to read a book. I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to see a therapist. You know, all those good things, by the way. But then you say, all right, I think I'm fixed. You get back on the road. You start driving again. Isn't this what sin is? Isn't sin actually a conscious decision, sometimes not even that conscious, to step away from dependence upon God the way you were designed to be? Like, I got this. I'm going to be autonomous. I think I know enough. I think I'm strong enough to determine my own destination, to drive my own way. You're not an autonomous vehicle. You weren't designed that way. You were designed to have God, if you will, hate to use kind of this analogy, but God in the driver's seat. You're designed that way doesn't mean you don't have freedom. I would even say this. The greatest freedom is when you're operating creatively within the confines of your connection to God, the way that he designed life to work. We learn what that looks like in this book. You see, that's true freedom. Now, I use all this analogy just to come back. Jesus is driving home with his disciples. There's some things that only can happen through prayer. In other words, only through your connection to me. What is prayer if not dependence upon God? And if you want to know how autonomously you've been trying to drive around, ask yourself, 
how's my prayer life? What things am I praying about? What things am I not praying about? And if the answer to that question for you, like me, is actually my prayer life's not that great, then I think that's a gauge that tells you that you're trying to live a little bit too independently than the design that you were made for, which is to be dependent on God, not independent from God. That's expressed through prayer. All right, so that's the slices of bread, okay? They, have, they are unable to cast out the demon. Jesus says, yes, you are, and you didn't ask for help. There are certain things that you weren't designed to do on your own. You got it? Now, let's come back to the meat of the sandwich and let's see someone who actually understood that more than the disciples did. So we're going to pick the text back up here in, uh, in verse, let's see, where do we leave off? 19. And here's what I want to say before we read this. Remember, this man has just come to Jesus and he said, your disciples could not cast out this demon. Let's see how Jesus responds. Verse 19. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Now, I want you to see in this text, there's some emotion that's coming out of Jesus, right? There's, it's you know, expressed here, oh, unbelieving generation. There's some grief here. There's, there's some struggle in the heart of Jesus as he looks out across the crowd. And what is it that is bringing out this emotion? It's their unbelief. It's their lack of faith. This reminds me later on in the text when Jesus is going to be overlooking Jerusalem. He's going to say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to, to, to gather you under my wings like a hen would gather her chicks, but you are unwilling. You are unbelieving. You are not seeing who I am and believing in that. That's what's happening in this text. It's drawing out some emotion in Jesus. Verse 20, here's what happens next. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, so when the boy saw Jesus, it's probably actually when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. Now pause just there for a minute. What, is that, what does that look like? It's epilepsy, right? It, he's having an epileptic seizure. Now what we know from the text is the seizures are being caused by something and that's not always the case now this is not teaching us that behind every illness or behind every epilepsy there is a demon but in this particular case and by the way some of the miracles of jesus demons aren't mentioned he just heals a physical disease other miracles there's no physical disease mentioned it's just a demon that he casts out and in this case at least you've got both going on and it seems as if the demon was the the cause of the seizures verse 21 and he asked his father how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now, a couple of things in this text. Number one, pay attention every time Jesus asks a question. Because Jesus never doesn't know anything. So if he asks a question, it's not for him. It's for the person he's asking it to. And he asked the father, how long has this been happening? Why does Jesus ask? Well, we don't know for sure, but I think we learned something about the father's answer. It's been a long time since childhood. Not only has it been a long time, but here's how serious it is. The demon is actually trying to kill my son. He's throwing him into the water. He's throwing him into the fire. We can't even turn our backs lest we're gonna lose him. 
Unless we're going to, you know, I don't know what kind of parenting challenges you guys have had. I know it's all across the board, but, but I know if you've parented long enough, you, you have at some point in time had fear for your child, either physically or emotionally or spiritually. And that fear drives you to desperation. And I think what Jesus is doing, the reason he's asking this man the question is, he's inviting him to reflect on the desperation that has led him to this point. Can you imagine everything this man must have tried? It's hard for me to believe that, that Jesus was the first person this guy came to and said, help. And nothing's worked. He's desperate, y'all. He's a father who's afraid for the life of his son. And he comes to Jesus and he actually does something without knowing it. He prays. Now he doesn't know he's praying because he doesn't know he's talking to God. But that's what prayer is. And he comes to Jesus, right? He's got all this struggle, all, this, all, you know, all the weight of this he's been carrying around. And he comes to Jesus and he actually has a really, really great prayer. And I want you to see that prayer. It's down here in 22. He says, Take pity on us and help us. Y'all, do you see that he's doing something that his Jesus' own disciples failed to do earlier? He's praying. He's asking for help. He's saying, I, I can't fix my son. Will you take pity? By the way, that is a great prayer. Take pity on me and help me. That's a prayer all throughout the Bible that God answers every single time. That's a prayer that comes from a position of humility, of insufficiency. This is beyond me, God. Take pity on me and help me. That is a great prayer. This is the prayer the disciples should have prayed earlier and they didn't. This is the prayer that would have made a difference if they would have prayed it. Father, take pity on us. We're, we're beyond our ability to cast out the demon. Help us. That's what Jesus is saying. That kind can only come out through asking me for help, through praying. Now, If you want to ask yourself, how is it that this man comes to Jesus, maybe his last desperate hope, and he's able to pray this beautiful prayer, but he prefaces it with this doubt? How is that going to turn out? Did you notice the doubt that the man expresses here in verse 22? Before he prays this wonderful prayer, take pity and help us, he has this sort of unfortunate phrase in a way, at least at first that's what you think, if you can. He doesn't know who he's talking to, if you can. But here's the thing about this phrase. Jesus is going to grab on to this phrase as an opening into this man's soul. Jesus is going to grab onto this phrase and he's going to do some jujitsu with it. <laughs> like literally, he's going to like turn it back around on the guy. Watch how he does this. This is, a, this is actually spectacular. 23, and Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Now, at first glance, that may not seem so like stunning, amazing, like, like awe-inspiring of the way Jesus is interacting with this man, but I, I want to unpack this. Here's what I'd say. Here's what Jesus is actually saying to him. Listen, listen, man, you've got the first part of the faith equation, which is to understand that you need help. That's the first part of the faith equation, and you're nailing that, like good for you. But there's another part of the faith equation. It's not just about owning your own inability. It's about recognizing my ability. It's not just about knowing that you're insufficient. It's coming to me and saying, you're sufficient. 
You see, there's these two parts of this faith equation, and he's sort of like deflecting this to the man. He's saying, if? What do you mean by if? Now, I, I love what is about to happen here, but before you get to what happens, I want you to see that Jesus is brilliantly setting up not just the healing of this little boy, but the healing of the boy's father too. Jesus is inviting the man into faith. He's saying, what do you believe? If, if I can do it, all things are possible for him who believes. What do you believe? And he literally just like hits the ball back on the man's court. This is just brilliant. He's saying to this guy, you're standing in front of me. What do you believe to be true? Why did you come to me? Do you believe that I can do this? And I want to pull out for just a minute applicationally and say, listen, anytime you bring some big, huge, scary, monster of a struggle in your life, fear, concern, failure, marriage, whatever it is, you bring that before God, what's actually happening here is you're, you're bringing it before God and Jesus is going to ask you, what do you really believe? Why did you bring this to me? Do you believe I see? Do you believe I care? Do you believe that I can do this? In other words, all things are possible for him who believes. What do you believe? Now, some of us are feeling guilt right now because we realize we don't believe. Not as much as we wish we did. And so we get to one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Mark 9 Verse 24. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Now I want you to notice a little detail in the text. He didn't reply. He didn't say. He cried. He cried out. That means there's something in him that's emotional, right? Jesus was emotional earlier. Now this man's getting emotional. And I think what's happening here is this is the desperate cry of a weary soul who just says, I believe, but I don't believe. I believe, but on the other hand, I doubt. Now I have to imagine when he shouted this out, he, he was maybe preparing himself for a scolding. In other words, he's saying, listen, there's a little piece of me that believes, but I'm not sure that's enough. I've got a whole lot of me that doesn't believe. I've got a lot of doubt. Would you help me with that doubt? And he may be preparing. And I, in my mind, I'm kind of like, he probably thought Jesus was going to say, help your unbelief? That's your job. I do the miracles. You believe. That's how this works. So why don't you go home? Why don't you exercise your faith muscle Get it stronger. And when you come back to me with no doubt in your mind, then we'll see. That's not what happens. Let's find out. Let's keep reading the text. This is verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. Now listen, y'all. Here's what happened. Jesus said, listen, your faith is imperfect. It's not all the way there, but I don't need perfect faith. I'll take that little bitty slice of faith, maybe call it a mustard seed. Now watch what I'm gonna do. And he answers the man's prayer. He casts out the demon. 
He rescues the son. I love the way Alan Cole put it. Alan Cole is a commentator. He wrote a great commentary on Mark. And here's what he wrote about verse 25. He said, The father cries for help, honestly confessing the poverty of his faith. And Jesus answers, but not according to the poverty of the man's faith. Jesus answers according to the riches of his grace. And I read that and I'm like, is it okay for there to be some poverty in my faith? That's hopeful. That's hopeful. Now you got to see what happened next to really take this home. Verse 26. Crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, the, the demon came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he is dead. Now this is weird, right? It's gone from bad to worse. Like the boy at this point is in worse shape. He's either literally dead or he, he's comatose and he looks like he's dead. 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, or raised him, and he got up. Now, I don't want you to miss this interesting little detail. Mark could have just told us he cast the demon out and all was well. But no, he takes these two verses to tell us it looked like it got worse. And then Jesus intervened and raised the boy up. You'd be interested to know that in the Greek text, there are two words right here in verse 27 that are the same words that are used elsewhere of resurrection. Literal resurrection. Of earlier in Mark, there's a girl that Jesus raised from the dead. You may remember that. Later in Mark, they're going to be used about Jesus' own resurrection. I don't think it's too much to read into the text that Jesus is trying to point to something here by the way this played out. He's trying to point to the fact that there's not just a demon that's gone. There's new life emerging in this boy. And I think he may be pointing us to the idea that there's new life available for all of us who believe. I don't think that's too much to see Mark using this to point us to the cross and the empty tomb. Now think about this for a minute. Go back to the theme of this passage, which is your insufficiency, your lack, your inability to do it on your own. Isn't death the ultimate expression of that? Isn't death kind of the leveling of the playing field? No matter how smart you were, no matter how strong you were, no matter how much money you made, no matter how popular or famous you were, or all the inverse of those things, you're all going to die. There's going to come a point in your life that your body will finally give out. That your autonomous vehicle will finally hit the end of its road. What Jesus is pointing us here to is, listen, you can't do it all on your own. You can't actually live, not forever, not for that long, without believing in me, without shifting your trust, without plugging yourself back in. You're not going to live as an autonomous vehicle. I think all this is here in the text, but don't miss the fact that this prayer that unlocked faith and healing in this case was this I believe, help my unbelief. It was an imperfect prayer. I actually think it was a wonderful prayer. I think this is a prayer that we should pray more often. And so what I literally want to do is the application of this text with the time that I have remaining is I, I want to lead you in helping you pray this prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. 
Because here's what I actually think is true in the room. All of us have some areas of our lives that we're struggling to, to believe God about or believe God in. We're all having some faith struggles. And I want to unpack that according to two categories. And I think this will cover everybody. The first category is one that we don't talk about a whole lot, and I think we should. Many of you in the room, you just struggle to believe any of the Bible stuff. Like any of the whole story. Like maybe you're just, you're just not there, God in general. It's hard for you to wrap your brain around that there is a God who created all of this. And it's even harder for you to wrap your brain around that like he expressed his word is speaking to us through this book and that Jesus is his son and that the miracles are real and there really was a resurrection. I mean, let's just talk about that for a minute if we can. No shame. I'm glad you're here. And some of you, like you've never crossed the line of faith because of these doubts. Others of you, you believed in the past and now you doubt. Now you're not so sure. You're in a season of your life right now. Man, I've got close friends that are in this season of their life where they're like, man, I used to believe this and I just don't know anymore. Y'all, that's a faith struggle. And I want to ask you today, this morning, wherever you're at in that, could you pray this prayer? I believe, help my unbelief. In other words, could you say, listen, there's a little bit of me, like the fact that I'm even here today, maybe it's even against your will, I don't know, but the fact that you're here today, there's a little bit of you that wants to believe, that kind of will grab onto something, but then there's a whole big part of you that doesn't believe. Are you willing just to pray this prayer? I believe, help me, help me, help me with my unbelief. Now, I want to talk to another category of people. Maybe your, your faith struggle is not in, is the Bible true or is God real or is Jesus actually, you know, who he said he was? Maybe your faith struggle is, I've got this situation in my life that's beyond me, and I'm not sure if God actually cares. I'm not sure if God sees. I'm not sure if God hears. I'm not sure if he loves me enough. I'm not sure if he's powerful enough or interested enough. He's just absent. And I want you to see that that's a faith struggle as well. It's not a faith struggle of, is God real? It's a faith struggle of, is God present like he says he is? You know, can I believe these things? Does he love me like this book says he does? Is he strong and powerful and everywhere? Is he in the middle of this really hard situation? That's your faith struggle. And so wherever you are on that paradigm, I want to give you this analogy and then I want to lead you literally in a prayer that'll help us wrap this, I believe, help my unbelief prayer around your situation. So here's the analogy. I came across this this week as I was reading. Imagine if you're falling off a cliff and you know you face certain death and then you see a little branch sticking out from below you as you're falling toward it and you realize that's your only hope. Now what goes through your mind in that second is you're looking at the branch and it doesn't look very strong to you at that moment. In fact, you're thinking there's only a small chance maybe 10% chance that this branch is going to hold my weight. And yet you know it's your only hope, so you reach for it. And you grab it, and it holds you. Did it matter that you only had a 10% likelihood in your head that it was going to hold you? 
Did you have to be 100% confident it was going to catch your weight in order to reach out for it and it hold you and catch you and save you? No. You see, it's not the quality of your faith that counts. It's the object of your faith. And so wherever you are in this faith struggle, maybe it's just faith in God in general, or maybe it's in this situation. I don't know if you're 5% believing, 10% believing, 90% believing. Wherever you are, it's not about the quality of your faith. It's about the object your faith is in. Are you willing to reach out and just say, this is my hope. I'm going to reach for it. I believe. Help my unbelief. So I'm going to invite the band out and I'm going to lead you in this prayer. And I'm going to ask you to think of one specific thing. What is one thing in your life that just feels too big for you? Like you're out of your depth. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a work challenge. Maybe it's a loss, a struggle, a dream that has died. Maybe it's grief that you're carrying around for some loss. Maybe it's this whole faith thing. It's just like, I, I don't know what's going to happen after I die because I don't know if I believe any of this. Take that thing, just take one thing. And I want us to pray this prayer for that. I believe, help my unbelief, and I'm gonna guide you, I'm gonna lead you. So let's bow our heads as we pray. Our Father, none of us has perfect faith, not a one. And yet, Father, in this text, we actually find hope that that may, that, that may be all right. That maybe you won't turn us away just because we're not all the way there. That, that maybe actually you've designed us to be needy. That you've designed us not to operate sufficiently without you. And maybe, God, you've actually put these situations in the lives of these men and women in the room, whatever this one thing is they're thinking about. Maybe you've allowed that to be there so they would cry for help. And so, Father, I pray for each person in this room. We've got hundreds of people here and others that are watching online. And for every person, there's something unique that they're thinking about right now and they're bringing before you. And, Father, they're essentially saying, I believe, help my unbelief. So, church, I want to invite you to think about the first part of that prayer, the I believe part. What is it? that you're willing to say, even if it's small, that I do believe this is true about God, his power, his control, his care, his love, his truth. What, what is it about God in this situation that you're willing to say, that part I'm okay in. Maybe it's 2%, but what is it? I'm gonna invite you to contemplate that and just talk to God about that in, in these, these few moments. Go ahead. So, Father, I know that you see that faith. You know, you hear those prayers of faith, uh, and faith pleases you, right? But I also recognize, God, that in each of us, and you recognize this too, there, there's another part of this, and it, it may even be the bigger part, and that is we're not so sure. We doubt. We have imperfect faith. And so, church, as you think about what part of that situation that you've already been praying about, what part are you struggling to believe? What part do you doubt? What part are you not sure? What part just seems too big or, or uncertain? 
Could you pray the second half of the prayer along those lines? Help my unbelief, God. In other words, take all this doubt over here and would you help me with it? And take a few moments right now to pray that prayer. Help my unbelief. Our Father, I have to believe that the prayer for help honors you because it is an admission of where our resources end and it is a a confidence that you might be able to do something to intercede and help. So even in the the lines of growing our faith, Father, we can only have so much and I pray that you would give us more faith I pray that you would close that gap between our belief and our unbelief. And I pray, Father, that you would be pleased and honored even by this cry of help for more faith to believe. And Father, I also believe that you've sent your son Jesus to bridge the gap between unbelief and belief. And the more we're willing to step in and say, I believe, help my unbelief, I believe, help my unbelief, the more that we're actually growing. And so, Father, would you continue to help us grow as we continue to pray? And it's in the name of Jesus, the powerful, mighty name who is our sufficiency. In his name we pray. Amen.